Well, greetings from California. Uh, Sam said uh, uh, you need to wear a coat and tie this morning, so I had to YouTube how to do a Windsor knot. So uh, please don't judge my tie. We're, we don't do that in California. But it is so great to be here. Um, and yes, I was on the phone with my wife, walking, pacing in my hotel room, watching the end of the game. And my wife said to me, I want to win this so bad. And I said to my wife, that's probably the most romantic thing you've ever said to me. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so God is good. And I'm sorry, you named your team after the devil. What did you expect that <laughs> to happen? Woo, okay. Um, today, we're in a crisis. I know it's, that language is used all the time. But most Americans agree on that. Think about it. In a time in which Americans don't agree on anything, 98% of us agree that incivility is a threat to this country. 65% believe we're at crisis levels when it comes to incivility. And 42% of Americans would say, I do not feel safe sharing my perspective publicly. Now, that is a great moment for the church to step up and say, we do it differently. We have strong disagreements about a lot of issues as Christians. Of course we do. And we add theology to the mix. But the way we do it is different. But that is not our reputation. Our reputation is that we're just as bad as everybody else, or we're worse. All my graduate education is at a secular university. When I first got there, I didn't inform them right away that not only was I a Christian, but I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, now called Crew. I just didn't lead with that. So I was privy to some backroom conversations about how they felt about conservatives, and particularly conservative Christians, and it was not flattering. One person called us the pit bulls of the culture war, small brains, big teeth. So we have got to understand that our reputation is um, not impeccable with those outside the church. Now, whether that's earned or not, we can talk about that later. But it got me thinking about how much the scriptures talk about reputation. Uh, a quick survey would be, oh, I'm sorry, let's back that up just a little bit. There we go. A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. I love what Ecclesiastes says. A good reputation is more valuable than costly perfume. By the way, do you know what the most expensive perfume is in the entire world? It's called DKNY, delicious, by, uh, made by a fashion uh, expert. It costs $1 million per three ounces. My wife loved it. She thought it was... <laughs> no. You're laughing, like, how did you afford that on a professor's salary? Well, I also do modeling. Um, <laughs> that, was, that was hurtful. <laughs> First Timothy 3, 7 says this, and I love this. He, an elder, must also have a good reputation with outsiders. I love that. Of course you have a good reputation within the flock. But to be an elder, you have to have a good reputation outside the church. Now, why is a reputation so important? Now we're into the field of communication theory. Aristotle would say the most important thing about you is your reputation. What precedes you when you walk into a room will determine how persuasive you are. And remember, we're all Christ's ambassadors. Paul would say to every one of us, you are an ambassador 
of Jesus Christ as though God were speaking through you. We, be, we beg you on behalf of God, be reconciled to men. So our reputation is incredibly important. It will enhance our communication or it will absolutely hurt our communication. Now, the cool thing about communication theory is we do all these crazy studies. Uh, when you're doing a communication study, it's really sleight of hand. You don't tell a person what you're studying. You really do um, do one thing, but you're actually studying another. One of my all-time favorites is simply called the chocolate eclair study. Now, one communication theorist wrote a totally bogus academic article arguing that if you ate one chocolate eclair a day, you would lose weight. Wouldn't that be great if that was true? <laughs> Um, but there was something, in, he made up a term that was in it, but, but then here's the study. He would take this bogus article and he would walk into health clubs and he would present the argument and see what the reaction was. But here's the study. He would attach a school's name to the study and notice the reaction. So, so let's say, I'll just pick something, my, when I did my undergrad, Eastern Michigan University. He'd walk in and say, hey, did you hear the new study that if you eat one eclair a day, you're going to lose weight? And of course people reacted like, well, that's crazy. He said, well, it's coming out of Eastern Michigan University, and most people would still say, well, that's, oh, come on, that's academics gone. That's nuts. What he wanted to know is what school would stop people dead in their tracks and actually, based on their reputation, get them to consider a totally bogus argument. Do you know what school was top of his list? Harvard? Biola University, where I teach. <laughs> no, I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping my president watches this online, right, you know, kind of a thing. It was MIT. MIT got people to stop and say, oh, well, that's really, could you send me the link to that study, right? So listen, reputation, good or bad, is what's gonna follow us as we are Christ's spokespeople in the world today. So it's very important for us to ask the question, what's been our reputation? We, we know if you teach in apologetics that being a hypocrite follows us everywhere. And sadly, we've given much justification to that. Uh, just recently, some of our top name apologists have uh, found out, been living double lives in the very famous church. There's a Netflix series about the downfall of a very famous series of churches. So it's not that that reputation isn't earned in some ways. So it's good for us to ask the question, what's been our enduring reputation? And this is interesting what we argue in the book. Our enduring uh, reputation is that we quarrel with each other. The issue of quarreling leaps from the text of almost every New Testament epistle. Whether the letter is long or short, 1 Corinthians or Philemon, quarreling is addressed. Whether the church is doing well or doing poorly, Philippians or Galatians, quarreling is addressed. Whether the tenor of the epistle is doctrinal, Romans, or personal, 2 Timothy, quarreling is addressed. It's followed this everywhere. I find it fascinating when Paul writes to the church of Corinth. It's interesting that he puts this tension in play. He starts by saying, to the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, and then literally, what is it, five, six, seven verses later, he says, I have been informed there are quarrels among you. So guess what? Part of our reputation is when it comes to disagreements, we are not a shining example we are kind of falling into what Deborah Tan and Georgetown Linguist calls the argument culture, and we have been slipping into that. 
So what we want to address this morning is theologically what are some guardrails that we can produce. And then tonight at 7, from the book of Proverbs, we're going to take a look at how can you construct a conversation uh, so that it doesn't go off the rails right away. John Gottman, one of our top uh, relational experts, says the first 30 seconds of a conversation sets the tone for the entire conversation. So how we start this conversation is going to be incredibly important. And tonight, we're going to take a look at not only how to structure a conversation, but the pre-work. What we have discovered with the Winsome Conviction Project, a five-year project, we're halfway through it, is it's the pre-work that you have to do spiritually, emotionally, before you get to that conversation. And a lot of us just get frustrated, and we jump right into a conversation, what John Gottman calls a harsh startup rather than a soft startup. So tonight we're going to take a look at maybe how to do a soft startup um, <clears throat> because we need it. I, I mean, look at when Christians try to talk about issues. We've been literally traveling the country, working with Christian organizations, churches, and here's what uh, is a hit parade of the things that Christians are struggling with. By the way, Biola University, we struggle with this as well. How we talk about social justice. Is it a positive, negative, social justice warrior language is used? Uh, mask mandates. Uh, when do you say no? When is it a hard no to that? Uh, immigration. I would say race is in a separate category. Of all the issues we have tried to help, race is in a different category. It, it makes people defensive from the get-go. And we have got to find out why as Americans, and particularly as Christians, race has been brutally difficult for us to talk about. And uh, we're going to try to, we have to try to unpack that somehow with the Spirit's help, of course, but we've got to get to the root of why that issue is really separating uh, Christians. <clears throat> now, Paul deals with his version of it. Paul is going to deal with days and diets. Right? He's taking Jewish converts in the Church of Rome, and he's taking Jew uh, Gentile converts, and they're coming together, and they're not doing well with each other because of days and diets. Now, before you just think, well, that's kind of silly, days and diets. Understand, from a Jewish perspective, there were sacred days that everybody should observe, and there were certain foods that should be avoided. Now, if you take a look at the Gospels, what did Jesus what was the major claim of uh, Jewish religious leaders against Jesus? Why are you doing something on that day? And why are you, your disciples fo not following the dietary laws? So this is going to blow up the Church of Rome. And Paul's going to step in and address it in a really interesting way that I think will be encouraging and frustrating at the exact same time how Paul jumps into it. But we've already read the text, right? In verse four, uh, chapter 14, verse 4, let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. One man regards one day above another, another regards every day of life. Right? The Jews are saying, of course I'm up for Christianity, but we better respect days and diets. The Gentile believers are saying, yeah, not so much. I'm relishing the grace and freedom that uh, Paul's given us, and I'm not going to go back and put these burdens on myself. Welcome to Paul's dilemma. Now today, just replace days and diets with whatever you can think of. Days and diets with politics. Days and diets with issues of immigration or race or mask mandates, and Paul becomes very relevant very quickly. 
<clears throat> so he's going to mention three types of beliefs. We're not going to have problems with two of them, but it's the third one that's going to cause us to think a little bit. So first, Paul says, and Sam mentioned this, these are our orthodox beliefs. They are confessional beliefs, theological and moral absolutes that if you're an, if you're an evangelical, you subscribe to this, right? What would be some of our theological beliefs? Jesus is uh, fully human, fully divine. Salvation is found in Christ alone. Uh, Jesus rose from the dead bodily. Um, God is the judge of all people, right? Those are our confessional beliefs. Then he actually adds moral uh, beliefs, and that would be, right, in the previous chapter, chapter 13, he mentions orgies, drunkenness, and sexual immorality. So if you're disagreeing with confessional beliefs, you're taking yourself out of the evangelical uh, community. So I think we can all agree on that. Then he goes to another one that we won't have much problem with, uh, preferences. Now, what does Paul say about preferences? One, I, I do not want you to argue about spiritual gifts. I've told you they're all valuable. Do not argue that one's superior than another. And then he says, I, I don't want you to argue who baptized you. You are all baptized into Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter who did it. So I do not want quarreling over those things. I think we can all sign off on that. It's when he adds a third category that things really get interesting for the Roman believers and for us. Because he introduces disputable matters. A third category between absolutes and preferences. So Paul's going to say this, and it's going to be thoroughly unsatisfying. He's going to say, okay, Jewish converts, days and diets, absolutely. Absolutely, days and diets. You respect these days and before your conscience leads you to avoid certain food, I have no problem with that whatsoever. Gentile believers, I understand that you want to relish in this newfound freedom, this grace. You do not have to subscribe to days and diets. Okay? Now, everyone is not pleased. Everyone's like, well, that what? Was it a foul or was it not a foul? You know? Um, but Paul then said, and by the way, he even throws his hat into the ring and even says, I'm kind of with the... Gentile believers on this one, but listen, I'm giving room for both. We have to adopt that perspective today. We have to have a sense of intellectual humility. We have to understand that godly men and women disagree on really important issues that I feel very passionately about and want to say, I think this is pretty clear in scripture this way, but it's not a confessional belief. It is a disputable matter that good people just flat out disagree with each other. So all my seminary training is from Reformed Theological Seminary. I'm not Reformed. I loved my time there, but as I got educated, I kept thinking, I don't, I'm not Reformed. So I have deep respect for Calvin, Luther, Owen, but I'm not um, a Calvinist. I go to bed with C.S. Lewis under my pillow every night. But I'll never forget what one of my seminary professors said in my Systematics 1 class. Richard Pratt said this, the mystery of theology is how godly scholars can intently study the scripture and feel guided by the spirit, yet almost completely disagree over an issue. Like he said, that's the mystery of theology. We're just going to have to have some humility in recognizing that. So I teach a gender class. In this gender class, um, 
So at Biola University, it's very much debated complementarianism, egalitarianism, very quickly. Complementarianism, husband and wife is totally equal, God loves both, but he's asked them to do different things in the marriage. One of the things is he's asked women to submit lovingly to the husband. Egalitarianism uh, is uh, both equal, uh, both are leaders, and both lovingly submit to each other. Okay? So, I teach a gender class. I know this is in the background. Students are asking about this. So I invite two top scholars to my class. One, he is the top egalitarian theologian alive today. He happens to teach at Biola University. He's a friend of mine, love him to death. Uh, bring him in, I give him a full hour to go, and he goes. And he's going right to the Greek, right to everything. He fit finishes, then I bring in a complementarian theologian, he comes in and rocks it. Go into the Greek, now I tell my students, ask all your questions while they're there. I am former theater major, ask all <laughs> your questions while they're there, and they do. There's a smattering of questions. They leave, every hand goes up. And here's what they want to know, who's right? And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So then we do a, I do a talk on hermeneutics. What are some guide rules for studying the scripture? So when I finish, the students go, wait a minute, based on that guidebook, which I learned from Reformed Theological Seminary, the hermeneutical triangle, but wait, based on both, they're both justified in having, right? Based on that model, they're both justified in having the belief. I said, yeah, I think you're right. Now, in the mind of God, is it resolved? I do believe in the mind of God this issue is resolved. But I don't think when we get to heaven, it's going to be like a cosmic information dump. I don't think we get to heaven, God goes, okay, on three, boom. And we're all like, oh, are you? That's where my car keys were. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> no, it's, I don't think it's going to be that. I think we're going to say to God, okay, okay, I'm dying to know. Romans 9, 10, and 11. I'm dying to know who was right. Because Romans 9, 10, 11, you go to get commentaries, they are all over the map. And some just flatly disagree with each other. I, I firmly believe we're going to get to heaven, and we're going to say to God, okay, so God, Romans 9, 10, 11. He's going to go, well, listen, John Calvin's right there. I'm going to go, John, Calvin, come here. I have questions. Like the, and he goes, okay, uh, okay. So understand, I've now gotten more information since I wrote that. God has given me some other interesting things to think about. So here's what I'm saying. Oh, what would Wesley say about that? Oh, Wesley's right over there. Oh, John, John, get over here. John comes over. I'm like, oh, I thought you'd be taller. You know, just kind of like, John, get over here. Now the two are talking, because remember, Paul says in Romans 11, we will never exhaust the knowledge of God. So I think God's going to delight in these conversations, delight in them. And he's going to say, no, keep going, keep going. And I'll give you some more. For, check back with me, 100,000 years. I've got something else I want you to consider. I think it's going to be glorious as we learn from each other, right? So Paul has given kind of an unsatisfying answer. He said, I'm allowing both camps to exist. I'm not telling you which way to go, but I'm going to tell you some things you must absolutely do within this disagreement. Oh, I forgot this slide because this, this is such a frustrating slide, you have to see it. So, InterVarsity Press, my publisher, 
puts together this series called the Four Views series. I have my students read these all the time. They pick major issues. Uh, so look at that, um, our miraculous gifts for today. Uh, what's heaven like? What's hell like? historical Adam, book of Revelation, divine providence, right? How do you do evangelism? And they bring together four scholars. They have the four scholars answer and present their views and then interact with each other. And it is thoroughly frustrating to read. Because you're like, wait, what? That was... And then they, I love how they interact with each other. Now listen, I don't think all four of those views on one topic are equally good. I come from a debate background. I can look at some of those four views and go, I think, I think that one's stronger than that one. But it is fascinating to be exposed to different ways of thinking, all within the evangelical camp, right? These are, uh, InterVarsity is a trusted publisher, so they're not picking people that are way out there, but it just shows you good Christians really disagree, and they're really articulate, and they have their biblical reasons for holding the view that they hold. So with that in mind, Paul says, here are some guidelines for these disputable matters. Number one, do your homework. Every one of you do your homework. I like what Paul says in verse 5. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. And then he says, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So Paul's saying, go do your homework. Dig in. I want you to have reasons for what you believe. And know at the end of the day, you will stand before God and give a reason for the faith that is in you. You will stand before God and give an account for the position that you have. We should trust each other on that. Trust that each one of us knows we're going to stand before God so we don't take this lightly. But now do your homework is going to be interesting. What do we mean by do your homework? I would say it's, it's, it's the method of the dialectic. At my, my students, and not all Christians subscribe to this, my students, whatever the topic is, they have to argue both sides. And argue it equally passionately and have good support for both sides. When I was at UNC Chapel Hill... Uh, I was teaching a public speaking class. Now, the, mostly non-Christians. So I gave them the assignment in this public speaking... Some public speaking classes, it's kind of like, I'm going to give a speech on how to pack a suitcase. I'm going to give a speech on fly fishing. And I'm like, I'm a, I'm a, I, I can't do that. Okay, I can't do that. Pick a topic that you deeply believe in. That's, you're going to write that speech the entire semester. So you can imagine what the topics were, pro-life, pro-choice gun control, death penalty, immigration. So they would write a speech uh, that they believed in, fully supported, I said, awesome, now write the other speech. Write a second speech. And by the way, they're both getting graded. And if that second speech is bogus, if it's half-hearted, your grade is really going down. So now a person who is pro-choice has to write a pro-life version and vice versa. So the students go away, three students are waiting for me. And they walk up and they said, we, we can't do this assignment. I'm like, why? So well, we're Christians. Now, I had not told them I was a Christian, nor on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. I would do that later in the semester, but I didn't start that way. I said, well, listen, what, what's your speech going to be about? Well, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I said, are you, so you don't think there's any arguments against Jesus rising from the dead? Now, ironically, at UNC Chapel Hill is Bart Ehrman, one of the top liberal theologians who does not believe that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. He's right there at UNC Chapel Hill. 
So I said, if, if you have never read Bart Ehrman, he's going to argue against the resurrection. Well, I can't do that. It's my strongest conviction. I cannot write a paper like that. I said, well, I admire your chutzpah. You're about to get a zero. <laughs> so go write the paper. Because when we do our homework, we have to be careful of what psychologists identify as my side bias, which means, yeah, I want to know what nine, Romans 9, 10, and 11 uh, is about, but I go to commentaries I already know I'm going to agree with. I go to, I go to news sources I already know I'm going to agree with. So uh, we, we love to promote, and it was so cool that a woman in first service, it's her and her brother who do this website, it's called allsides.com, where they take current news and they pick the center left and right, and you read the best from every perspective. I make my students go read about politics, what's happening from three different perspectives. We've got to be able to do that. And if we don't do that, we might fall prey to confirmation bias or my side bias. Second, Paul says, and I think this is such a good word for today, do not despise others. Paul says, listen, Romans 14, 3, do not condemn the other side. And then he says, why do you look down on your brother? That word condemn from the Greek it's to treat as nothing and to do so with contempt. Paul's saying you're all brothers and sisters in the faith. Yeah, you have different beliefs, disputable ones. Remember, don't forget the confessional ones. The confessional ones are bringing us together, but there are disputable ones. You do not talk about the other side with contempt. And as Americans, that when people ask me, is today really as bad as we want to make it out to be? I think what's entered the equation is contempt. Not only do we disagree with a person, but now I, I, I despise that person. I cast them in devil terms. They're either all good or all bad, and we've lost nuance today. And I think we're going to have to recover some of that nuance. Next, self-restraint. I love this verse. He says, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. There is the work of God. And right now, this days and diets issue is keeping us from what God has called us to do. What's he called us to do? It's what Sam said, the first and second great commandment. And food is keeping us from doing that. My goodness, we need to hear a modern translation today. Do not stop the work of God because of immigration. Do not stop the work of God because of mask mandates. Do not stop the work of God because of politics. Do not. I know you're going to disagree with each other. I've given you freedom to disagree with each other. Just don't stop the work of God. And I will tell you, two and a half years into this project, churches are stopping dead in their tracks. They can't move forward because they can't talk to each other anymore. And if we can't talk, that's where bitterness, resentment really does take root. That's why this afternoon we're going to learn a model. It's not perfect. But, but if you go into a... How many of you have had a conversation, went into it, and it just went off the rails in the first minute, and you thought, what in the world was I doing? Right? Well, we got to have a plan. The book of Proverbs says a word spoken in the right circumstances is compared to fine jewelry. So we're going to get one method of how do you structure a conversation heading into it based on the rule of reciprocation, which we'll, you'll hear uh, this afternoon. Now, start a dialogue, not a quarrel. Remember? Our reputation is that we quarrel, we don't have constructive dialogue. So what does he say in Romans 14, 19? So then let us pursue the things which make for peace in the building up of one another, 
And then uh, this model you're going to learn this afternoon is based on the book of Proverbs. So I love what Proverbs says, Proverbs 17, 14. Starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam. So drop the matter before a dispute breaks out. How can we construct a conversation that it doesn't spin out of control? We call that a negative communication spiral. And we can think of all of communication as positive spirals, negative spirals. By the way, the reading this morning was Peter's attempt to say, how do you break a negative spiral? Remember, he says, I do not want you to give an insult for an insult. Rather, give a blessing instead. That's how you stop a negative spiral. Now, we'll have to define what a blessing is, and we'll talk about that this afternoon. I want to end with wisdom from two women on how do we approach this when you really disagree with each other. Uh, the first is a historical example. So remember when Nikita Khrushchev came and spoke to the General Assembly of the United Nations in 1960? Now, this is the famous taking off his shoe, beating on the podium, though there's really debate whether that ever happened or not. But what is undebatable is he spoke very firmly against American imperialism and basically threatened the United States. So when that was done, you can imagine what that did to the communication climate. Well, Eleanor Roosevelt heard the speech and did something that she was soundly criticized for. She invited him for tea. And you can imagine what the headlines were. That's how you treat a man who wants to destroy our country. You invite him for tea. And this is what she said in response. I think it's brilliant. We have to face the fact that either all of us we are going to die together, or we're going to learn to live together. And if we are going to live together, we have to talk. Men and women, John Gottman will say, <clears throat> he's very famous for saying this, show me a marriage that argues, and I can save it. Show me a marriage that argues. They care enough to argue, and I can save it. Show me a couple that doesn't argue, and I might not be able to save it, because they don't care enough even to argue. So do we care enough to have really hard conversations? Because if we don't, I think it'll really eat, eat the American church out from the inside. Then let me mention this. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Get a load of this. Brett Kavanaugh is being brought onto the Supreme Court. Now, you can imagine the differences they have. <clears throat> and yet she welcomed him in a very famous, warm way. Uh, she was asked about that, and this is her response. When you're charged with working together for the most of the remainder of your life, you have to create a relationship. The nine of us are now a family, and we're a family with each of, each of us, our own burdens and our own obligations to others. But this is our work family, and it's just as important as our personal family. I love that. Men and women, we are the family of God. And, and here's what the Church of Rome had that we don't. There was no church plant of the Church of Rome. It was the Church of Rome. So where are you going to go outside of the Church of Rome? Right? Ephesus, it was in the shadow of Artemis, this huge pagan god that ran Ephesus. So guess what? Did the people of Ephesus disagree with each other? Yeah, but don't forget Artemis. Artemis is right there and had a way of clarifying things pretty quickly. 
So men and women, are we going to have disagreements as a family? Absolutely, but we're a family, and I love what she says. When you are charged with working together for the rest of your life, I'm going to work with this person. It better be cordial, it better be friendly, because the opposite is unthinkable. So men and women, you better believe we have an adversary. And that adversary is absolutely committed to splitting apart this church. 9-11 brought us together, COVID separated us. Not just separated us physically, it separated us in our communication with each other. And we have got to fight for the family of God. So I'd like to pray for you. Uh, this afternoon, please, you're going to hear a model. Uh, Sam's going to moderate. You can ask questions. Um, and I will try to justify my opposition to Duke in biblical ways, but I'm going to need some, I'm going to need some time to get there, okay? So let me pray for us. Father, we come before you, and we confess that we feel very strongly about issues. And we have studied. We do believe this is what the Word of God says. And yet, a person disagrees with us or doesn't prioritize it the way we prioritize it. Father, we know we live in the argument culture, but you also have said, blessed are the peacemakers, that they will be called the sons of God. Father, we know we have a reputation, and that reputation is that we quarrel, we argue, that sometimes we absolutely mirror the argument culture. Father, help us be different. Help us to speak truth, but do it in love. As Peter says, give a reason for the hope that is in us, but with all reverence and gentleness. So, Father, be with this church. We always pray for church leadership. We always pray for the leadership of this country. That, Lord, we would turn the corner in how we talk about differences. And that that would unify us, not separate us. That's our plea. We give it to you. We pray in your son's name. Amen.